1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's the 22nd of June, 2000. It's been a long day on the tomato farm, but there's a reward at the end of it. Two couples are heading out to dinner to celebrate Martin Cockle's 23rd birthday. While a group of the backpackers are sipping on farewell drinks for Sarah Williams, nearby in a different section of the Hotel Childers, it's far more civil. Martin and his girlfriend Lisa Duffy are dining with Anne-Marie Bolt and her boyfriend of the time, James Whitehurst. By their standards... It's a late one, eventually calling it a night and climbing into bed around 10.30.
2: My room was above the community area and there was, there was, was a, a vending machine in there and in my imagination, all I could think of was the um, big pane of glass smashing or crashing in the, uh, in the fire. It could have been one of the other windows down there. But that's certainly what woke me up. There was a big, big sort of crashing noise. Um, I woke up and there was um, see flames looking out our bedroom window and there was lots and lots of like commotion going on outside our room and there was a, I don't think there was much smoke coming through him but there was it was you could smell it and it was, it was a little bit probably coming on underneath the, uh, the base of the door.
1: That's James Whitehurst. We caught up via a fairly crackly data call while he was in Bali for a friend's wedding earlier this year. He's hardly spoken about Childers in the past 20 years but has very vivid memories of his escape from the inferno that night.
2: Panic, definitely. Panic and fear they probably roll into one. It was there was the sense of urgency to get out. You yeah, know, the foolish part of me was was I know I, I had time. I had time to put my jeans on somehow. <laughs> I and I grabbed my passport. In in clarity, I, I shouldn't have done that. Wouldn't shouldn't have been bothered about that, but. You know, I think panic does, very, does strange things to you. I knew where my jeans were, they were ready for the, the next day <laughs> work clothes. And I knew where I always knew where I put my passport. And I just instinctively grabbed those before we opened the door. Really don't. It's, it's those moments of you. You go, and something or something's become automatic.
1: His Australian adventure certainly didn't run to plan. He'd set aside a year, started fruit picking in New South Wales, then headed to Brisbane. When money ran out, he chased the season further north, choosing Childers over Bundaberg, figuring an extra hour's sleep of a morning was a much better
2: deal. It's not often I talk about this. No, it's just crap.
1: I can just imagine that the reality when it hit would have been at a enormity that no one in that building had ever been exposed to before.
2: No, it's the um, vast majority of people that are on a trip of a lifetime, you know, having to supplement it with some you know, hard, tough uh, work. You know, your reward at the end of the day was a couple of couple of beers, or swapping your phone numbers or emails when you left, and staying in touch. You know that was that was the reward of the experience, enjoying another part of the world, and to have the opportunity to take that decision to you know leave your family and friends behind from your homeland. It's always a, it's a big thing in the first place, um, but not to not come back. No, it's just crap.
1: 20 years on, it's still as raw as ever, I am sensing, mate.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've, how often do you speak about it? It doesn't, it's often, it doesn't come for your thoughts every day, I don't think. But when you concentrate it into a conversation, into a, a short time period, it brings it all home. Um, and there's still an element of guilt. What's, what's that guilt for? Um, I did. They didn't you know, who picks and chose. I was on holiday. They're on holiday. You, know, you, you do sometimes think on how, how fair life can be. You know, I'm, I'm beyond grateful that I got out. You know, um, and there's so many people to thank and to be appreciative to, you know, both before now and afterwards. Um, I guess you gotta live for them in that, in a way.
1: Two nights after the fire, the community centre was used to host a public memorial service for the victims.
3: Well, we knew we had to do something, and, and the memorial service was something that we wanted to do reasonably quickly. Uh, it took a fair bit of setting up because we wanted to make sure we had representatives of of the governments that were involved, the countries that were involved, that the different kids had come from. We wanted to do it while the survivors were all all still there as well. It was an extremely emotional time uh, so soon after the fire.
1: Nancy Calder was tasked with pulling it together on short notice.
4: So you know all about it. You were there when we set the big screens up outside on the street and closed the highway off because there were so many people wanted to come to the service and of course we couldn't fit them all in and uh, everybody stood out on the street looking at the big screen those who were inside well they were lucky enough to be inside but it all it all i don't know how it came together but it did
1: i was one of the journalists invited inside that night my cameraman mick gray was filming it for the big screen I think that's probably the saddest room I've ever been in. Yeah, it's terrible. How was it being the cameraman for that event?
5: It's very hard to film anything with tears through a viewfinder and that's and that's the truth. it was horrible. it was it was very emotional, it was your heart went out to to the families of the people that died, your hearts went out to the survivors who lost friends and and lost all that lost everything they had you now where what do they do now? you know what happens you know, what their ongoing support you know like you, you, so many thoughts, so many emotions yourself, you know it's it's very difficult. Mm.
1: My colleague Kim Skubris was reporting on the service.
0: From here, the survivors will survive. Some are staying, some are continuing their travels around Australia, others are returning home. Whichever path they take, their journey, at least for a while, will be a tough one. That was the night I shared a tear live on air that uh, we were discussing the memorial. And I'm not one short for words (laughs) and... uh, I was really struggling to put what I had experienced into words that night, because I just felt I wasn't able to do it justice. And when you take your job as a responsible journalist seriously, you're there in a position of privilege to represent what's going on and to share the story without bias and to give a fair account that's not embellished And I just felt at every turn, and I had a few years under my belt by then, that you just kept feeling like, is this for real? I'm telling you the truth. What I've just witnessed is mind-blowing. The outpouring of grief from the community, the rage that there's this arsonist on the loose. It was, it was unreal and very hard to project to the outside world, who obviously were just still getting on with life.
1: On stage, a full cast of dignitaries there to pay their respects. They shared so much, youth, energy, enthusiasm, the spirit of adventure, the joy of life and of living. The Governor-General spoke on behalf of the Queen Prime Minister John Howard paid special tribute to the community volunteers
5: that have given such wonderful help and sustenance and support and demonstrated that wonderful Australian mateship in a time of need and distress I remember walking through crowds um, after I arrived and uh, they were at the memorial service and and, and the locals were very good you get that response it's a great Australian spirit and one likes to think that that sort of reaction can be found anywhere in the world, but we are certainly very spontaneous in our willingness to help people who are visiting our country. And and these young people were devastated by what had happened. Some of the people they had only just met, others had been travelling with them, and they were all away from home. And, of course, they had parents and other relatives and friends who had heard about this tragedy, were alarmed, for their safety, and that added to the drama of it and added to the enormous assistance that they were to get from the local Australian community.
4: I had the Governor-General's Private Secretary ring me on the Sunday afternoon and say, can I help you with anything? And I said, well, if I gave you a list of who's coming... Because every time Bill walked past me, he'd say, Oh, the governor's coming, or Oh, the governor general's coming. And it was getting out of hand you know, for this memorial service. I said, If I send you a list of who's coming, can you do the protocol um, seating for me for the memorial service? Yep, no problems at all. So that just, I shot that off to Canberra, and it was all done for me down there. People were just so supportive.
5: My most vivid recollection is the, um, the unbelieving grief of these young people. It was the last thing they expected. They were all in their teens, early 20s, so I could recollect. They just couldn't imagine that something like this would happen and there wasn't a lot of comfort that people could offer except to be there. And I felt that was the best thing I could do and I spent quite a lot of time there. I went up earlier and I met a lot of local people. But the important thing when something like this happens for somebody in the position I held at the time was to uh, demonstrate uh, sympathy, concern and give a reassurance that the federal government will do what it has to do uh, and should do uh, in order to help people. Queensland Premier Peter
1: Beattie was there as well. It was his second trip in three days after jetting up to see the extent of the damage on the day of the fire.
5: I can
3: remember Peter stepping across the road, sticking out his hand and saying to me in exact words, Bill, no politics in this mate, how can I help? We have to look after your community and we have to do the right thing by the survivors and and those uh, uh, relatives of those that lost their life. And from that day forward, I must say uh, his efforts were magnificent in ensuring the state government uh, did what they could to assist us as was John Howard and John Anderson from a federal point of view.
1: People want answers in these circumstances. There's always a grieving process as well, so everyone who'd lost their life and their families had to be treated with dignity and respect. It really is almost, if you like, a coordinating role, but not being too intrusive. And the face, really, of the response was Bill Trevor, and it should have been too, because he was the mayor and he was the voice of the local community and he was someone they all respected and none more so than that
3: night. And on Friday morning, ladies and gentlemen, a great part of our community was wrenched from us in the horror that was the fire at the Palace Backpackers Hostel.
1: His words on stage at that service were heartfelt, compassionate, and struck a chord with the global audience it was being broadcast to.
3: I can remember the Premier coming up early in the afternoon and and he said to me, Bill, let's just go for a drive. And we went for a drive around the district and I remember getting home a bit late and my wife saying, have you written anything down for your speech tonight? And I said, I've tried, it just doesn't come together. And, uh, And up on the stage that night, I remember being introduced and stepping up to the microphone and the thing that that I remember vividly is looking down into the eyes of all those survivors, looking up, and somewhere from deep inside come the right words. And uh, yeah, it was an extremely poignant and an emotional moment. Sometimes it's a blur. Sometimes bits flash back. I've never been a great one for writing speeches down. I try and talk from the heart. But what I want to express was our great sorrow to the parents around the world that had lost their children. Childers, to me, bring up my own family, had always been a safe place. This was not something we could ever have imagined had happened. And I wanted to express to the world that we shared their grief, that we wanted to do what was right to honour those young people's lives, and that we would put in place something fitting to take their lives and celebrate their lives into the future, interacting with the parents
1: for the most part it was a service organized in not much more than 24 hours for the victims in consultation with the survivors was there a process of engagement with the with the 69 survivors sort of sitting them down and saying okay what do you guys want what songs do you want Oh yes so tell me about that
4: they wanted a big sheet a big white sheet so I said, righto, because I've got a big white sheet for them, not knowing what was going to happen. And they wrote little notes on this big white sheet and they pinned their little flags of the different countries on it. And and that became part of the ceremony that night. And in the meantime, I'd got onto the state government and I got the flags of every country that the 15 were from to put on the back of the stage. Now, the state government flew that up in the state helicopter, all those flags. That's the sort of thing that happened. Everybody just worked so closely together. It was marvelous.
1: 15 candles sat on a table at the front of the stage. And one by one, 15 survivors came forward to light one for their mates. What's your recollections of that event?
2: Gosh, a lot of emotions listening to the music they were playing, and you know I can still hear songs now yeah I think I think everything was so surreal I don't even think we were probably we knew how to deal with it even now you still think about it you don't know how to deal with it necessarily but you know the memorial yeah, it was lovely you know it makes it easier to sit back and say that now but
4: yeah, you know, everyone clubbing together. Yeah, it was the way that the community came together. We were made to feel very special, very looked after. Um, I feel like children is part of my heart. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a really hard feeling to explain. The memorial service definitely was, um, it, it was done so well.
6: Probably the saddest room you could ever be in. It was a very weighty sort of a, a feel to the room. It was very heavy and um, you could see people who weren't even in the fire or anything were really struck with grief.
0: And, yeah, I do I remember feeling desperately sad and, but then afterwards, for the first time, very calm. That memorial service helped a lot in terms of just settling some of the intensity that had been going on up until then.
1: There's a beautiful moment where it started with two people embracing on stage, and pretty quickly, all 69 survivors are up on stage, linking arms. You were one of the first ones to go up there. Was it just something you had to do, and it just felt like you were in it all together? Like, what was the what made you get up on that stage so quickly and be part of that?
2: Uh, I don't know. I've never been shy. <laughs> I've, never, I've never been. I've never. I've never been a. Uh... Wallflower, I don't think. Uh, I don't know. I, you, you just got up and did it, but it's what felt right at the time.
0: I remember the whole time trying not to cry for some reason um, and be brave and
4: just get through it. And at the end, all of us 69 survivors got up and hugged each other and listened to a song and just
0: remembered them.
1: You guys all got up on the stage, and mm. it was, was it "Stand by Me" was the song. Or yeah, you've got a yeah. friend. Or yeah, yeah one of You've those got songs a friend. Yeah,
6: that was really impromptu because people were making their speeches and really struggling to get through them. You know, they've just lost their best friends, and you know who are like your family. And so, you, you know, there was people making speeches and breaking down, and it was it was awful. And someone just got up and went and stood with someone, and then. Next minute we are all like, oh, well, let's all get up and... St-. So we just all got up and stood with them and that was it.
3: Was it, was it
1: good for the group?
6: Yeah, I reckon it was. Yeah, it was kind of like, well, you know, we're all look after each other and if you're, you know, having a tough time, we'll all stick stick by each other. Still to this day, like, you know, we all keep in contact in some some way, shape or form
4: it was a very moving service as you can imagine because the kids all came in and they wanted to light candles and some of them wanted to get up on the stage and speak and sing and all sorts of things which was wonderful and we just let them go we just let them do what they wanted to do because it was a release for them as well and the place as I said was absolutely packed and I don't know, it just happened, but it it happened well because everybody worked together.
1: Some of the survivors spoke on behalf of the group. One of them
2: was James. I know that I volunteered, um, but that, in a sense, was out of character. I don't feel I'm somebody that craves limelight or attention, but I felt compelled at the time because there were certainly more exuberant people that didn't. So I just felt I needed to say something on on, on their behalf. A part of each of us will remain here.
1: It was a powerful tribute which ended with this fond farewell.
2: In our hearts and minds, rest easy the pallet 15 and God bless.
1: It became the soundbite used in news headlines right across the world. Do you remember the last line you said? It's certainly referenced reference to the people that lost their lives. You said, rest easy, Palace 15. And, and they kind of stuck. They collectively became known as the Palace 15.
2: I kind of regret that, anyway. <sighs> they're not numbers.
1: I don't think it's anything to regret. I think it's been considered very endearing and affectionately twenty years on, and through those past twenty years.
2: Well, there's a positive thing, great. But uh, people are people; they're not a number.
1: Yeah. Is that something that you've considered over the over the time, or is it just sort of? Something you're saying you regret now.
2: It my words stuck. Label and number. I don't feel too good about that. If it helps, the number draws attention back to them. Think right. But um, if people don't remember the names, then it's pointless.
1: There was another speaker that night, Dutch survivor, Manushka Taven. James thinks that's when they actually learnt each other's names. Well, he was back in the UK when he received an email from Manushka. They kept in touch and met up at a one-year reunion in London. They've now been married ten years.
2: We ended up dating for six months flying backwards and forwards sort of once a month between UK and Holland, Netherlands, and she took then decided to move over to England. So you give it a go. Um, And I suppose we haven't looked back.
1: James stayed in Childers a little longer after the fire. And if he thought his speaking role at the memorial service had gained some attention, it was about to go to a whole new level when a royal princess came to town. You don't want to miss that story. Hit subscribe and make sure it appears on your podcast feed. Thank you for listening. This podcast was written and produced by me, Paul Cochran, supported by the Bundaberg Regional Council, who maintain the incredible memorial to the 15 victims of the Childers Fire. Make sure you get along for a visit if you can. My thanks to the Seven Network for their generosity in making audio from the memorial service available for this podcast. And, of course, Zoltan Fecho for all his work in edit and creating all the original sound design and composition. Thanks for listening.